Chapter Ten of Walpole. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Domestic Affairs. Foreign historians sometimes talk of the torpor of the Walpolean era. Doubtless the era had none of the glory of Elizabeth or Cromwell or Chatham. Yet it was now that the bearers of two of the most illustrious names in the literary history of the century came to kindle in England the lamp of European illumination. Voltaire visited this country in 1726, and Montesquieu followed him hither in 1732. It was Walpole's England that inspired the philosophic letters and the spirit of laws. The violence of faction, the froth of parliamentary passion, the boisterous humors of elections, did not divert these brilliant and sincere observers from the truth of the matter. They felt the movement, the freedom, the full pulse and current of vitality under an uninteresting surface. The fact that Voltaire deemed most worthy of attention under the head of government was equality of taxation. The contrast between England and France was a poignant one to his humane and social intelligence. Quote, Here, he said, the peasant has not his feet bruised by sabots. He eats white bread, and he is well clad. He is not afraid of increasing the number of his cattle or putting tiles on his house, lest next year he should have his taxes raised. He noticed with amazement and admiration that in England the younger son of a peer did not disdain to carry on useful business in the city, while in France he would have scorned any life outside the frivolous slavery of Versailles. Though the government was in the hands of an aristocratic oligarchy, the oligarchy was not a caste. Later economists believe that the earnings of the laborer have not for many ages commanded so large a portion of subsistence as at this period of the eighteenth century. Hallam, like Malthus, is of the opinion that in respect of the real happiness of the community, the reign of George II might be advantageously compared with the more brilliant but less steady condition of later times. Footnote. Constitutional History Chapter sixteen, three, three o two, tenth edition and footnote. One of the grand articles against Walpole is that though he was at the head of affairs for so many years, not one great measure, not one important change for better or worse, marks the period of his supremacy. He ought, according to Whigs of our day, to have shortened the duration of parliaments. Yet all the wisest of the reforming Whigs of that and the next generation held that more frequent elections would be an aggravation of every parliamentary mischief. He ought to have insisted on limiting the number of placemen and excluding pensioners. Yet, when the innovators set to work in 1780, they judiciously sought for a real remedy, not in the exclusion of placemen, but the suppression of places. The patriots who had clamored against Walpole's corruption for twenty years tolerated, practiced, and aggravated every evil of his system for twenty years after. Before they blame Walpole for not introducing great measures and making important changes, his critics ought to say for what important change the time was ripe and the opportunity safe. A vast and important change had been made at the secession of the Hanoverian line. The one object of a wise minister was not to make other changes but to guard that. Some ministers are great because they pass great measures. 
others because they either prepare or secure them. Walpole was a great minister of the second of those two orders. Why should we mete out to him a measure which nobody applies to other statesmen of his commanding position? Walpole has rather a bad character, and the younger Pitt has an exceedingly good one. So Walpole is condemned as selfish and unprincipled for not being a reformer and not helping the dissenters, while Mr. Pitt stands undisturbed on his pedestal, though he spoke against meddling with the Test Act, though he allowed parliamentary reform, which he had taken up in opposition, to drop when he was in power, and though he solemnly abandoned Catholic emancipation after as solemnly treating it as a condition of a great international compact. In saying this, I am not judging Pitt, but offering a standard by which we may judge Walpole. Political tranquillity was a condition of material advance. Under the appearance of torpor, men were minding their business and preparing the ways and means for that immense expansion which we associate with the name and policy of Chatham. Taxes were light, public credit was high. The administration of justice, which after taxation is the most important branch of government for the happiness of a people, was on the whole upright, equal, and sure. Even in the spiritual sphere, historians of thought have been justified in asking whether in the first half of the nineteenth century we could find three bishops of higher purity and devotion than Barclay, Butler, and Wilson, divines more honest and manly than Clark, or with a finer glow of devout sentiment than Law, workers of more honorable and laborious life than Watt, Lardner, and Doddridge, who all of them sacrificed preferment to conscience. Footnote. See Mr. Leslie Stevens' English Thought in the Eighteenth Century, Volume 2, page 384, and footnote. The dissenters, it is true, still labored under disabilities. The bills against occasional conformity and in restraint of the rights of dissenters to educate their children had been repealed in 1719, parenthesis, ante, page 55, and parenthesis. A motion for the repeal of the Test Act was thrown out in 1736 by Walpole's advice. As the dissenters were peaceful and law-abiding, and gave him no trouble, he would run no risk for their sake, and the Sacheverell explosion had taught him how sharp and serious the risk might be. All this is true enough, but it would have been little less than madness in any statesman, for a generation at least, to forget for a day the lesson of the Sacheverell explosion. That extraordinary outbreak had led to the Tory government of the last four years of Queen Anne, and to use again a strong expression that I have borrowed before, nothing short of the greatest miracle in our history prevented the Tory government of the last four years of Anne ending either in a legitimist restoration or a civil war. A statesman who had seen the Constitution come so close as that to disaster might well think it better that the dissenters should continue for some time longer to endure harsh laws than that new provocation to the church should bring back the old peril to the state. Three years later, the dissenters again approached Walpole, 
urging the repeal of the Test Act. He gave them the reply, so well known from all ministers to all reformers, that he quite agreed with them, but that the time was not opportune. One of the deputation heartily asked him when the time would come, quote, If you want a specific answer, said Walpole, I will give it to you in a single word, never, end quote. But reparation was made by the Indemnity Act, first passed in the first year of George II, and renewed every year afterwards with three or four interruptions down to 1828, when the sacramental test disappeared. The test remained to please the pride of churchmen, but if a dissenter chose to break it, with certain not unimportant limitations, he could evade the penalty. The struggle against occasional conformity had been inspired not merely by dislike of religious toleration, but by the solid political object of closing to dissenters the corporations which returned members of Parliament. Walpole's policy, as to tests, secured the practical victory while leaving the obnoxious flag of church privilege still flying. Lord Chancellor Cowper informed George I, on his accession, that if the clergy could be brought round, all differences of opinion as to the royal title would soon vanish among the laity. This extraordinary and dangerous authority would undoubtedly have been exerted against the parliamentary constitution, as the authority of clericalism has been in France, if Walpole had roused latent passions. The closing of the doors of convocation in 1717 was an effective protest against the virulence of ecclesiastical controversy, and no other was ever demanded. Early in his career, Walpole had encountered the obduracy of Scottish sentiment. In 1725, the disgust of the English country gentlemen at the exemption of Scotland from the duty on malt had grown so clamorous as to force him to propose a sixpenny tax on every barrel of ale brewed in Great Britain. The Scots took fire. All the dialectic ingenuity of the race was invoked against the obnoxious sixpence. The transfer of the duty on malt to a duty on beer was contrary to the act of union. Now the violation of any material article of a compact is a legal dissolution of the whole. Therefore, the union was dissolved. But the dissolution of the union revived the Scottish Act of 1681. Therefore, King George was no longer entitled to Scottish allegiance, and the next in succession of the Stuart line became King of Scotland. This train of argument was decorated with references to the separation of Denmark from Sweden, to the rejection of the yoke of Spain by the United Provinces, and to the revolt of Israel from Judah. The Scots had raised the oppressions of Charles the Second and James the Seventh. Should they not now resist the tyrannical minister who had riveted chains upon his king and his country? Violent tumults broke out in Glasgow, in other towns, the troops were called in, and there was considerable loss of life. The Edinburgh brewers entered into a solemn compact that they would rather not brew than pay the duty. The government held firm. Proceedings were instituted against the brewers for payment of the duty on stock in hand. They were told that nothing would be listened to short of entire submission. They met to discuss the question, brew or not brew. 
the chairman began to take the votes on his right hand but the right-hand man thought it hard upon him to have to speak first and the left-hand man thought the same and nobody would be the first to speak at length one man plucked up courage to vote brew and by noon the next day says walpole forty brew-houses were hard at work in edinburgh and ten more in leith this satisfactory result was due to the firmness and judgment of lord islay the duke of roxburgh then secretary of state for scotland and a friend of carteret had secretly encouraged resistance by representations that the days of walpole's power were numbered the minister sent prompt remonstrances to the king and roxburgh was compelled to resign the circumstances of the porteous riot are familiar wherever the english tongue is spoken because they were made the dramatic opening of one of his finest stories by that admirable genius who like shakespeare in his plays has conveyed to plain men more of the spirit and action of the past in noble fiction than they would find in most professed chronicles of fact the early scenes of the heart of midlothian are an accurate account of the transactions which gave so much trouble to queen caroline and the minister a smuggler who had excited the popular imagination by his daring and his chivalry was sentenced to be hanged after his execution the mob pressed forward to cut down his body porteous the captain of the city guard ordered his men to fire and several persons were shot dead he was tried for murder convicted and sentenced but at the last moment a reprieve arrived from london to the intense indignation of a crowd athirst for vengeance four days later under mysterious ringleaders who could never afterwards be discovered fierce throngs suddenly gathered together at nightfall to the beat of drum broke into the prison dragged out the unhappy porteous and sternly hanged him on a dyer's pole close by the commonplace of public execution carteret thought that these wild doings furnished good material for a parliamentary attack seventeen thirty seven if the government did nothing he could denounce them for indifference to law and order if they took sharp measures he knew that it would kindle the resentment of the scotch in either case moreover he would discredit the authority of lord islay to whom the minister looked for the management of scotch affairs this calculation proved quite correct walpole was bound to cover lord islay as well as his brother the duke of argyle and he dreaded lest the affair should become national the lord provost of edinburgh and four baileys were summoned to the bar of the house of lords and it at once became evident that so far as feeling in scotland went the affair was already national in its full extent their testimony showed that ninety-nine scotchmen out of every hundred thought that porteous had been justly condemned and justly put to death islay warned walpole that any attempt to inflict excessive punishment for porteous's murder would make the whole of scotland disaffected and would render the government of the country impossible in the course of a prolonged and acrimonious controversy the scottish judges were examined at the bar of the house of lords and a bill of pains and penalties was brought in for disqualifying the provost of edinburgh for all magisterial office in great britain 
inflicting on him a term of imprisonment, abolishing the town guard of the city, and removing the gates of the Netherbow port. This stringent bill passed the House of Lords by a majority of fifty-four to twenty-two. On reaching the Commons it immediately encountered very rude treatment. The forty-five Scottish members, regarding the bill as an insult to their nation, were against it to a man. The Tories professed to be opposed on principle to all bills of pains and penalties. Things began to look as if the bill would be flung out, and all Walpole's tact was required to prevent a parliamentary disaster. After a heated conflict the imprisonment of the provost was dropped, and so were the clauses for disbanding the town guard and demolishing the town gate. In their stead, a provision was inserted imposing a fine of two thousand pounds on the corporation for the benefit of Porteus's widow. The generality of mankind, says Harvey, looking on these great transactions in cold blood, were not a little amused at Parliament spending five months in declaring that a man should never again be magistrate who had never wished to be one, and in raising two thousand pounds on the city of Edinburgh to make the widow of Captain Porteus with unconjugal joy, bless the hour in which her husband was hanged. The course of these affairs contains the best answer to the charge made by Macaulay, among others, that it was the obvious and pressing duty of a British statesman to break the power of the Highland chiefs, and that it was through Walpole's failure to regulate the Highlands in a time of peace that his successors were forced to conquer them in the middle of a war with France and Spain. In 1738, Duncan Forbes, the acute and well-informed president of the Court of Session, submitted a scheme for raising four or five thousand men in the highlands. The disaffected districts would thus be drained. The pride of the chiefs would be gratified by the bestowal of His Majesty's commission. An act of military life would please the martial tastes of the clansmen. Walpole saw what was to be gained and approved generally of the scheme. Footnote, the Culloden Papers, page 31, end footnote. Two considerations of different degrees of weight made him hesitate. One was the clamor always very loud and just then particularly likely to rise, to its stormiest pitch against a standing army. The other and stronger argument was the intense national sentiment of Scotland, so vividly shown in the recent affair of Porteous, and the certainty that the levy of a large Highland force by order of the government would undoubtedly have been represented as a design on the national freedom. On these grounds we hold that Walpole was right in leaving the Highlands alone. What was easy for Pitt, after all, fear of the Stuarts, had practically come to an end, and after the spirit of partisanship and intrigue had died out of the Highlands, even if it was not actually impossible in Walpole's time, would, without dispute, have been extremely dangerous. The resentment of Scotland could not make itself felt before the arrival of a general election, which was still four years off. Meanwhile, Walpole was suddenly confronted with formidable and pressing peril nearer home. The smoldering hatred within the royal family burst out in a fierce explosion in 1737. Walpole described this unnatural conflict as the most troublesome and the most dangerous he had yet known. It arose from the marriage of the Prince of Wales, and was destined to have, in the fullness of time, a disastrous effect on the fortunes of Walpole. Prince Frederick, like his grandson George the Fourth, 
is a striking instance of the common and inevitable contrast in courts between important position and paltry character. By placing himself at the head of the able band in opposition, he took the sting out of Walpole's standing charge that the coalition was essentially Jacobite, and the adhesion of the heir to the throne marked a signal change in the position of Pulteney, Wyndham, Carteret, and their friends. The prince was vain, childish, and truthless. In 1745, when the news arrived that the Highland rebels had reached Derby and that his brother had marched northward to meet them, he was found playing at blind men's buff with the pages. He had a passion for disguising himself and running off to bull-baits at Hockley in the Hole. He was incontinent of speech, heedless of all correspondence between words and things, and while overflowing with conceit, was destitute of self-respect. This was the material out of which Bolingbroke designed to make his first patriot king. The prince, on his marriage, found his allowance of fifty thousand pounds, not enough for his new establishment. It was, moreover, intensely galling to him to feel that even this sum was not permanently settled by the arrangement of Parliament, but took the form of an annual gratuity from his father. To have too little money was bad enough, but to owe even a meagre income to the goodwill of a man whom he hated was unbearable. Bolingbroke and Chesterfield were at his ear, with the sinister counsel, that he should bring his irksome situation to an end by boldly laying his case before Parliament. If Parliament could be induced to request the King to settle £100,000 a year on the Prince, with a jointure on the Princess, then he would have gained three grand objects. He would have acquired a proper income, secured his own emancipation, and mortally vexed his father. The news that the Prince had fallen in with this suggestion exasperated the Court beyond all control. The Queen, a hundred times a day cursed the hour in which her eldest son had been born, and a hundred times a day she and the Princess Caroline wished that he might drop down dead of an apoplexy. The angry fires did not burn any the less furiously from the apprehension that the Prince might carry Parliament with him. Lists made out by his own friends promised him a majority of forty, and even the minister's list could not bring it lower than ten. Walpole took serious alarm. He saw that the moderate people on whom he always relied felt the injustice of leaving the princess without a jointure, and the prince a pensioner at pleasure of the king. Accordingly, with much difficulty, he persuaded the king to send his son a message promising a jointure and a settled allowance of fifty thousand pounds. He knew the risk, he ran, in the inflamed state of mind of his royal masters, of rousing the shadow of a suspicion that he was currying favor with the prince, quote, but it is my way, you know, he said to Harvey, and when you come to be in my place, I advise you to make it your way too, end quote. He could make the best of the royal jealousies another day. Meanwhile, the prince shuffled, begged the ministers who conveyed the message to him, to lay him at his majesty's feet, to assure his majesty of his utmost duty for the royal person, and of his sense of the royal goodness and graciousness, but that the affair was now out of his hands, and he could give no answer. 
the king was more enraged than ever and roughly reproached walpole for subjecting him to such a repulse walpole answered that the good he expected from the proceeding was to be reaped to-morrow not to-day and that what he had proposed by it was to bring the house of commons to reason not the prince of wales when pulteney brought on the motion for an address begging the king to settle one hundred thousand pounds a year on the heir apparent walpole replied in a speech of singular firmness and address after a long debate the motion was lost by a handsome majority of thirty against it it was commonly supposed to have cost the court a great deal of money in bribing members of parliament and the king though delighted with the result grumbled at the amount yet it appears that the cost after all did not exceed nine hundred pounds in two sums of five hundred pounds and four hundred pounds respectively to two gentlemen who were to have received the money at the end of the session in any case and who only took advantage of this particular occasion to exact prompt payment this is the one definite case of direct parliamentary bribery in walpole's history Quote, if ever any man in any cause said walpole afterwards fought dagger out of sheath i did so in the house of commons that day end quote. he knew that he carried his political life in his hand if he leaned ever so slightly toward the prince he ruined himself with the king and queen if he defied the prince he ruined himself with the man who might be king to-morrow the king as it happened had barely recovered from a serious illness and to people in the lively and morbid expectancy that is natural to all oppositions it seemed that he might disappear any day bolingbroke expressed his amazement at walpole's imprudence in truth walpole knew very well what he was about he acted on the maxims which had been the key to his success he had recognized what was just in the prince's demand by conceding it he had put his opponents in the wrong he averted the actual and present difficulty with the king without regard to the contingency of future difficulties with the prince when we hear of the mischief of a system which makes great ministers responsible to the public opinion of democracy it is well to remember the embarrassments and dangers that beset great ministers from the private passions of a court the miscarriage of the project that was to have done such fine things for him made it all the more odious to the prince to have to live under the same roof with his detested parents at hampton court or at st james's he attended drawing-rooms and levees and dined with the court in public but the queen though she allowed him to take her hand never spoke to him and the king pretended to be wholly unconscious of his presence the prince suddenly brought things to a violent crisis one night in seventeen thirty seven while the royal family were at hampton court the princess was seized with the pains of labour she was hurried into a chaise and driven off at the risk of her life at full gallop to st james's where in less than an hour after her arrival the unfortunate lady was delivered the queen was roused at one in the morning with the news of the flight she instantly dressed ordered coaches hurried after the singular fugitives and by four found herself at st james's at the bedside of her daughter-in-law the king's fury at his son's escapade knew no bounds scoundrel and puppy knave and fool liar and coward were on his lips at every moment it was all walpole's fault for forcing his master to settle fifty thousand pounds a year 
on the ingrate and so make him independent for life walpole took the royal storm with his usual composure at the same time he knew very well that the feud between the king and the prince was also a struggle between himself and the opposition the prince was nothing without carteret and pulteney bolingbroke and chesterfield some of his own colleagues too were less intrepid than himself they were less disposed than he was to burn their boats to cut off all hopes of future honour and emolument and lord hardwick especially remonstrated against the asperity of the message by which the king turned his son out of doors this only made walpole more determined to hold to his own course against prince opposition and trimming colleagues the chancellor the duke of newcastle and others who were of the same mind were for giving the prince another chance of making his submission no said walpole there is nothing like taking it quote, short at first end quote. the prince was ordered instantly to quit st james's palace and he borrowed the duke of norfolk's house in st james's square the guard was taken away from his door there was even an ignoble squabble as to the articles of furniture which he had a right to carry with him the foreign ministers were informed that it would be agreeable to the king if they abstained from visiting the prince a written message was even sent to all peers peeresses and privy councillors that if they went to the prince's court they would be excluded from the king's presence the prince was not to wait many years for revenge as we shall see when the critical moment arrived he became the principal agent in depriving the king of his minister and driving walpole from power the heaviest blow in walpole's ministerial career followed these vexatious events in the winter of seventeen thirty seven queen caroline died from an excess of delicacy remarkable in one of her strong character and only to be accounted for by the peculiar nature of her relations with her husband she concealed from her physicians an infirmity with which she had for some years been afflicted they pursued an erroneous course of treatment and when they discovered her secret it was too late she met her end with serenity and fortitude one unnatural antipathy burnt fiercely to the end the clergy made her profess forgiveness of her eldest son but to the last she refused to see him the king hovered incessantly about her bedside sometimes blubbering and maudlin sometimes bullying and peevish no more extraordinary deathbed conversation can ever have taken place between husband and wife the dying queen urged him to marry again wiping his eyes and his voice choked by sobs he ejaculated non j'aurai des maîtresses ah mon dieu replied the queen cela n'empêche pas when walpole arrived the king took him to the bedside the queen said quote, my good sir robert you see me in a very indifferent situation i have nothing to say to you but to recommend the king and my children and the kingdom to your care end quote. the change in walpole's position was profound and everybody was sensible of it and acted upon it quote, though he may have more power with the king than any other body said the shrewd chesterfield yet he will never have that kind of power which he had by her means and he will never dare to mention many things to the king which he would without difficulty have brought about by her means footnote twelfth november seventeen thirty seven volume five page four twenty seven and footnote 
Newcastle and the Chancellor were even emboldened to talk to the King on their own account. The difficulty of managing the House of Commons was increased by the rise in the demands of his followers of the baser sort, in proportion to his greater need for them. The resentment of the heir to the throne for the affronts that Walpole had put upon him became keener as he saw a nearer chance of gratifying it. All this only brings into stronger relief the bluff courage with which Walpole, now left standing absolutely alone, confronted the fury of opposition, the selfishness of colleagues, and the sudden humors of the king. End of chapter 10. Recording by Pamela Nagami.